August 6, 1888, was a cool and rainy night in the Whitechapel District of London. It had been a bank holiday, so the nighttime streets had been more lively than usual. The Whitechapel District in London's East End was home to the least privileged, the less fortunate. It was poverty-stricken, and acts of the more immoral and deplorable side of human character were the nightly norm. Martha Tabram and Marianne Connolly had been out drinking and pub hopping with two soldiers. Around 11.45 that evening, the foursome broke into couples and the ladies of the night, as they were, likely negotiated rates and found a suitable location that would offer a fair amount of privacy that the couples would not be disturbed for a short time. Martha led her patron onto a dark street known at the time as George Yard, while Connolly ducked into the next dark corner along Angel Alley. George Yard was one of the more dangerous streets in Whitechapel and was lined with low-rent, impoverished apartments known as the George Yard Buildings. A short while later, Connolly returned to the entrance of George Yard to reunite with her friend, but after waiting with no sign of Martha's return, she proceeded to head towards home. Shortly after 5 a.m., a resident of the George Yard Buildings, John Saunders Reeves, was leaving for work, but as he headed down the staircase as he did every day, he saw something unusual at the base of the stairs. As he got closer, it became clear that it was a woman. It was a woman lying on her back in a large puddle of blood. I invite you, if you dare, to turn down the lights, turn up the volume, and curl up with me, Autumn Rivas, in a darkly lit place while I tell you the story of Jack the Ripper. This week's episode is in the spirit of Halloween, so it's going to be darker and longer than usual. I hope you enjoy the story and have a wicked good Halloween. The woman found on the staircase landing in the George Yard buildings would later be identified as Martha Tabram. She had been stabbed 39 times from the throat to the abdomen and with two different blades. One small blade, like a penknife, and the other a larger, stronger blade what was reported to be similar to a bayonet or a large dagger. It is not widely agreed that Martha Tabram's murder was the work of Jack the Ripper. At the time, it was not unusual for London's inner-city prostitutes to meet with ill fates. There were actually 11 murders of prostitutes in the Whitechapel district between 1888 and 1889, but only five, known as the Five Canonical, were officially deemed the work of Jack the Ripper. Martha Tabram's name 
is not on that list. While no one in London would realize it yet, what would become known as the Autumn of Terror was about to begin. I recently visited London. It was my first time in the UK, and it wasn't until I started really researching the Jack the Ripper story that I realized the Airbnb we stayed in was within the Whitechapel district where all of Jack's slayings would occur. Had I known, I would have appreciated the area more. In hindsight, there were clues all around us to indicate the significance of the neighborhood, like a restaurant named the Serial Killer Cafe, cereal with a C, like the breakfast staple, and Jack the Clipper Barbershop. I also would have taken the opportunity to get photos of the original crime scenes and other locations that are relevant to the story. The first officially recognized murder of Jack the Ripper would occur three weeks after the death of Martha Tabram on August 31st. Marianne Nichols, better known as Polly, was mother of five and had been separated from her husband and her children for eight years. She was destitute and penniless and made her living as an indentured servant and prostitute. And rumor has it that she was also a heavy drinker. In early August of 1888, Polly was 43 years old and living at a shared lodging house in a room with three other women, one of whom, an elderly woman named Emily Holland, would be the last person to see Polly alive. Polly changed residences on August 24th, moving out of the shared lodging house with her three female roommates and into a DOS house called the White House. A DOS house was British slang for very cheap lodging provided to the poorest and most impoverished. This particular DOS house permitted men and women to share a bed, making it little more than a brothel. Just after midnight, on August 31st, Polly was said to be seen leaving the frying pan pub on Brick Lane. On a side note, while the frying pan pub has long since closed its doors, the building is now the location of a Bangladeshi restaurant and hotel. The outside facade to this day is still graced with the original brick gable embossed with two crossed frying pans. At 1.20 in the morning, Polly returned to the lodging house where she shared the room with Emily Holland, but she was turned away when it became apparent she had no money to pay for her bed. At half past 2 a.m., little more than an hour later, Polly would run into Emily on the street. At this point, Polly was noticeably intoxicated and staggering against the wall. Polly boasted that she had earned her DOS money three times that night, but had spent it all on drinks. Emily tried to convince her to come back to the lodging house with her, but Polly stubbornly refused and instead insisted she would make her DOS money once more that night, promising to be seeing Emily soon. 
The women then parted, with Polly heading east down Whitechapel Road, and Emily returning to the lodging house alone. Around a quarter to four in the morning, Charles Cross was making his way to work down Bucks Row, a dark and narrow street running parallel to Whitechapel Road, when he spotted a shadowy figure on the ground in the gateway of a stable yard. As he approached, he realized it was a woman, but he couldn't be sure at first sight if she had been unconscious or even alive. Another man then started down the street and was waved over by Charles. The two men briefly examined the woman who lay on her back with her skirts disheveled around her waist. They straightened her skirts to allow for some dignity and set off in agreement to notify the first policeman they passed. It had been too dark and poorly lit on Buck's Row for the men to see that the woman's neck had been slashed so violently that her head barely remained attached to her body. In the meantime, a police constable discovered Polly's body. He called for backup and a doctor to investigate the extent of the victim's injuries. Polly Nichols' throat had been cut left to right from ear to ear, and the laceration was done with such force that that cut went all the way back to the vertebrae. Her abdomen also suffered from multiple stab wounds, very deep and exerted with great force. The investigating doctor determined that all wounds were inflicted with the same weapon, a long bladed knife. days later, on Saturday, September 8th, the mutilated body of Annie Chapman was discovered. Annie was a widow who had fallen on hard times following the death of her estranged husband. While John Chapman had been alive, she received an allowance of 10 shillings a week, but after he passed, she barely scraped by selling flowers and then eventually turning to prostitution to help pay for a bed in one of the many Whitechapel lodging houses. Annie also suffered from ill health and reportedly had mild to moderate symptoms of tuberculosis and potentially syphilis as well. On the morning of September 8th, around 1.30 a.m., Annie is reported to be seen at the lodging house eating a baked potato but when asked to provide payment for the nightly bed fee, she admits that she does not have the means to pay. She tells the proprietor to hold her bed for her as she would return soon with her DOS money. But Annie would not return to the lodging house that night. 56-year-old John Davis was leaving his apartment home at 29 Hanbury Street around six in the morning he headed down the three stories of stairs like he did every day. But when he swung open the door leading into the small backyard, he found himself in the grips of a nightmare. There, 
between the fence and the steps were the mutilated remains of a woman's body. Lying on her back, legs spread and skirts pulled up around her waist. The immediate reaction of John Davis was to run for help and he cried out to some workmen who were walking down Hanbury Street. He shouted to come quickly. Another woman has been murdered. The butchered remains of Annie Chapman lie on the ground in a large pool of blood, her head narrowly attached to her body. Her abdomen was sliced open and exposed. She had been cut from groin to breastbone with her intestines pulled out of the body cavity and placed over her right shoulder. The heart and liver were above her head and her reproductive organs and bladder had been entirely removed and suspiciously were missing from the crime scene. Perhaps even more suspicious was how these pelvic organs were removed. A single clean slice with a knife without damaging surrounding organs. It was almost as if they had been removed by a skilled surgeon, or at least someone with more than average knowledge of human anatomy. The gory and horrific mutilation of this latest victim would spawn an outcry of the people in Whitechapel, demanding the police do something to identify and arrest this deranged killer. The streets of Whitechapel would be quiet for the next few weeks. Police learned of a suspicious character known as Leather Apron, who had been threatening local prostitutes with violence if they didn't pay him off. This was the first clear suspect in the slayings. On September 10th, two days after the killing of Annie Chapman, John Pizer was identified as Leather Apron and arrested. Unfortunately, Pizer had an ironclad alibi for the nights when the murders occurred, and he was released. While many letters had been received by the police from senders alleging to be the Whitechapel murderer, one received by the Central News Agency on September 27th stood out from the rest. It was addressed to the boss of the Central News Agency and was entirely written in red ink. But perhaps the most significant content was in the signature line. It was signed, Yours Truly, Jack the Ripper. The complete transcription of the letter is as follows. Dear boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. I am down on whores and shan't quit ripping them till I do get buckled. Grand work the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. 
I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with, but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Haha, <laughs> the next job I do, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers just for jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work, then give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp. I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind me giving the trade name. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got all the red ink off my hands. Curse it. No luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. Ha <laughs> ha. The killer now had a name, and the notorious title of Jack the Ripper was famously coined. At first, both the editor at the news agency and the police ignored the letter, assuming it was a hoax like all the others. But that was before Jack raised the stakes. In the middle of the night, on Sunday, September 30th, he would make two more kills, less than an hour apart. Elizabeth Stride, better known around town as Long Liz, had been born in Sweden and immigrated to London in 1866. She would be married three years later, and the couple would enjoy a few happy years running a coffee shop. However, their love affair would not end in happily ever after, and 12 years later, the couple would be separated, and Liz moved into one of Whitechapel's many lodging houses. She would be arrested several times for drunken disorderly behavior and solicitation, and on September 29th, she would spend her last day on earth cleaning rooms at the lodging house where she was staying after Liz headed out on that fateful Saturday night, she was spotted by several witnesses throughout the night. Most notably were the last two witnesses who reported seeing her in what would be the last 30 minutes of her life. It was a cold and rainy night when police constable William Smith reported to have seen Liz with a man standing outside Dutfield's yard around 12.30 in the morning. But the couple didn't seem to be acting suspicious, and the constable continued on his beat. About 15 minutes later, Israel Schwartz reported to be walking down the street and saw a man stop to approach a woman who was standing in the gateway to Dutfield's yard. He would later identify the woman he saw as the victim, Elizabeth Stride. Israel would later testify that the man he saw tried to pull the woman into the street. He turned her around and shoved the back of her shoulders, throwing her to the ground. Schwartz testified that the woman screamed three times but very softly, and thinking that he was witnessing a domestic assault and not wanting to get involved, Schwartz crossed to the opposite side of the street. There, he claims to have seen a second man lighting a pipe, 
This is where the story gets a little strange. Schwartz claims that the first man, the attacker, called seemingly addressing the second man with the pipe, yelling Lipsky. It was at this point that the second man started following Schwartz. Fearful for his own safety, Schwartz starts to run and was able to lose his pursuer. In Schwartz's statement to the police, he stated that he could not say if the two men were together or if they were even known to one another. The second man may have also been startled by the shout of the word Lipsky and just happened to start off in the same direction as Schwartz as a matter of coincidence. There is also some debate of the significance of the word Lipsky and what it means. Most sources indicate that at this time, this was an insult directed towards a Jewish person. Schwartz was a Jew. There is no evidence that Jack the Ripper had an accomplice. But was the man Schwartz saw attacking Elizabeth Stride the deranged killer that had been terrorizing Whitechapel? It seems somewhat improbable that the same woman would be assaulted by one man and then within 15 short minutes be viciously killed by another. Lewis Demschutz arrived at the entrance to Dutfield's yard at 1 a.m. driving his pony and cart. When the pony spooked and refused to continue into the yard, Demschutz believed that he had saw something blocking the pathway, but it was too dark to make out any real details. He went inside a nearby club to get some help, and upon returning, investigated to realize that it was the body of a woman, and her throat had been cut to the spine. Liz's body, however, was not mutilated. It wasn't slashed or even cut. There was bruising on her shoulders, likely from where she had been shoved to the ground, but no other wounds had been inflicted. It's believed that Demschut's arrival may have interrupted Jack from completing his butchery, and with his appetite for blood and gore not satisfied, it may explain the motivation for the double murder that night. Eddowes, or Kate, was 46 at the time of her death. She had been separated from her common-law husband and had taken up with a man by the name of John Kelly. She was not known to be a heavy drinker by habit, nor did she have a reputation of walking the streets as a prostitute. Each summer, Eddowes and Kelly would go hop-picking to make some money. And in 1888, they traveled to Hunton, about 35 miles from Whitechapel. But by the end of September, they hadn't made much money, and they started the long walk back to London. They traveled with another couple. The woman, Emily Burrell, gave Kate a pawn ticket for a man's flannel shirt. I know that may seem insignificant now, but in a few minutes, I'll explain why that pawn ticket is important. They finally made it to London, 
on Friday, September 28th, and they separated for the night, each taking a bed at a different lodging house in Whitechapel. They met back up early, around 8 a.m. the next morning, and pawned Kelly's boots for breakfast. Once again, out of cash, the couple parted ways. Kate told John Kelly she was going to visit her daughter and borrow some money from her and that she would be back by four o'clock that afternoon. John Kelly, however, would never see Kate alive again. Kate Eddowes did not go visit her daughter that fateful day. She was arrested at 8 p.m. for drunken disorderly conduct when a police constable found her on the ground entertaining a group of surrounding onlookers. At 12.30 in the morning, Kate calls out to the police guards to ask when she would be released, and she is told when you are capable of taking care of yourself, to which she replied, I can do that now. Kate is released from jail at 1 a.m., and upon leaving the police station, instead of turning right in the direction of the lodging house, she turns left, what would prove a regrettable decision, to say the least. At 1.35 a.m., three men are leaving a club near Mitre Square and report seeing a man and woman speaking to one another at close distance, but that it did not appear to be suspicious or an unwanted encounter. The woman they saw would later be identified as Catherine Eddowes. Police Constable Edward Watkins patrolled the area surrounding Mitre Square every 15 minutes, and at 1.30 a.m., he would see nothing notable in or around the square. At 1.45, however, he would walk into a nightmarish scene. There, in the darkest corner of the square, lay the mutilated remains of Catherine Eddowes, lying on her back in a large pool of blood. Her throat had been slashed to the spine and skirts disheveled around her waist. Edo's body and face had been butchered. She was split from groin to breastbone. Her intestines had been removed, placed above her shoulder. Her left kidney and part of her womb were missing from the crime scene. But what was new in the mutilation of Catherine Eddowes were the inflictions done to the face. She was left completely unrecognizable. Her eyelids were cut, her nose, her cheeks, even pieces of her ears had been removed. She would eventually be identified by John Kelly because of the two pawnbroker tickets found in the possession of the deceased, one for a man's flannel shirt and the second for a pair of men's boots. There is also a significance in the location of Catherine Eddowes' murder being in Mitre Square. 
Unlike Whitechapel in the East End, Mitre Square was considered to be inside the border of the City of London. This meant that the City of London police would now be joining Scotland Yard in the murder investigation and the search for the killer known as Jack the Ripper. Within an hour, two women had been killed and police blanketed the East End. It seems like an impossibility that the murderer would be able to elude police, but somehow he did, and he left a clue. About a six-minute walk from Mitre Square was Goulston Street. In a dark doorway, police would find a piece of Catherine Eddowes' bloody apron. This clue indicated the direction the murderer had headed after he committed the atrocities to Catherine Eddowes. He was headed back into Whitechapel. Instead of running as far away from the police investigations as possible, he walked right into the wasp's nest. This showed Jack's level of arrogance and sense of invincibility that he could not be caught and potentially that he was headed back to his home base, which was likely within the Whitechapel boundaries. The bloody apron also provided perspective on the amount of blood that the killer would have come into contact with. He would have used the apron to wipe the blood off his hands and the blade of his knife. The original thought was that the killer would easily stand out in a crowd as he would be covered head to toe in the blood of the victims. But the bloody apron of Catherine Eddowes would help investigators determine that Jack's victims were strangled prior to any lacerations being inflicted. This meant that the heart had stopped pushing blood through the body before his bloody carnage began, minimizing the risk of large amounts of blood splattering off onto the killer. He would strangle the victims and lay them down before he started cutting. In addition to the bloody apron, Jack also left a message scribbled in chalk on a brick wall. The Jews are the men who will not be blamed for nothing. This strange message would become one of the most controversial in the murder investigation. Scotland Yard, you see, insisted that the message be washed away immediately as it could lead to anti-Semitism, violence, even a full-blown riot against the Jewish population living in the Whitechapel district. While the London police wanted to wait until daylight so that a photograph of the inscription could be preserved. Because the location of the message was within the Whitechapel jurisdiction, Scotland Yard had the final say, and the message was removed before it could be photographed. This left a rift between the London City Police Commissioner and the lead of the Scotland Yard investigation. It is also interesting to note 
that several of the officers who saw the graffiti firsthand indicated that it looked faded and could well have been there for weeks. And it was simple coincidence potentially that the Ripper chose this doorway to ditch that bloody apron. It would also seem somewhat unlikely that given the amount of police presence in the area, that the Ripper would loiter long enough to take the time to leave this shocked message. After the double murder of Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes on the fateful night of September 30th, the Dear Boss letter received by the Central News Agency was revisited. In fact, the police made the letter public the day following this horrific event. On October 30th, the Dear Boss letter would be printed in newspapers and the legend of Jack the Ripper would be born. After the night of the double homicide, Whitechapel was quiet and the strange sense of normalcy had begun to return to the streets. While no murders were committed for weeks, Jack had been busy harassing and provoking the investigators, diligently trying to capture and identify the Whitechapel Slayer. Several notes and letters had been received by police and news agencies, but few were taken seriously as legit correspondence with the now legendary killer. The stories of the horrific mutilations of the Whitechapel murders and the now public Dear Boss letter had shown a worldwide spotlight on the city of London and on the terror that overshadowed the East End. Queen Victoria herself called Scotland Yard on October 1st, 1888 to express her discontent with the failure of the investigation to capture the murderer and is quoted to have said, our detectives must be improved. They are not what they should be. The citizens of Whitechapel also weren't happy with the lack of progress the police investigations had produced and a local committee was formed to patrol the streets at night on the lookout for the notorious killer. It was known as the Mile End Vigilance Committee and it was led by a local citizen and committee president, Mr. George Lusk. Lusk had a very active public profile in early October, organizing meetings, increasing patrol activities, and speaking in public on behalf of the efforts being made to catch the killer. He had also petitioned Scotland Yard to offer a reward leading to the arrest of the murderer and a pardon to any accomplices in hopes that it would lead to the eventual arrest of the killer. On October 16th, a package would be delivered to Mr. Lusk. The parcel contained a letter and a small box wrapped in brown paper. The box had a reclusive smell and when opened, it was found to contain a severed human kidney. The letter itself read, From hell, 
Mr. Lusk, sir, I send you half the kidney I took from one woman, preserved it for you. T'other piece I fried and ate, it was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out, if you only wait a while longer. Signed, catch me when you can, Mr. Lusk. The initial reaction of George Lusk was that this was all part of some sick joke and that the organ belonged to some kind of animal. But after a doctor's examination of the kidney, it was determined to be human and theorized that it had belonged to Catherine Eddowes. Although the medical science in 1888 was not sophisticated enough to confirm this theory. Mary Kelly was considerably younger than Jack's previous victims. She was only 25 and was said to be very attractive and composed herself with an aura of confidence and poise uncommon for a person of her position in life. She was tall, five foot seven, with blonde hair and blue eyes. She was said to be very clean and often seen with friends around the neighborhood and was well liked by everyone who knew her. Mary Kelly was born in Ireland and had been married at a very young age of 16 and sadly was widowed shortly thereafter when her husband died in a coal mine explosion just three years later. It was after this mournful loss that she turned to prostitution as a means for survival. She moved to London in 1884, where she found employment at a high-end brothel on the West End. For the next three years, she would bounce around from lodging house to lodging house until in 1887, she would meet a man named Joseph Barnett, and after just two dates, the couple decided to move in together. By late summer of 1888, the couple had been renting a small room off Dorset Street in Miller's Court, but Barnett lost his job, so Mary returned to the streets to try to earn some money. Barnett disapproved of Mary selling her body, but with his lack of income, they weren't left with many options, and this led to many arguments between the two. At the end of October, Barnett broke it off with Mary and moved out of the room on Dorset Street. Joseph Barnett would last see Mary Kelly alive on the night of her death. Having remained on friendly terms, he had paid a visit to her between 7 and 8 p.m. on November the 8th. And upon leaving, he told Mary that he still had no work and was sorry that he would be unable to help her with the rent. At 11.45, Mary Kelly is spotted by a neighbor. She was drunk and with a man returning to her room. She told the neighbor she was going to sing, and several neighbors, some more annoyed than others, 
reported to hear the singing from Mary's room, and it continued from midnight till about one in the morning. An hour later, around 2 a.m., George Hutchinson, a local resident, is walking along Commercial Street and passes Kelly, who stops to ask him if he could lend her some money. But he tells her he unfortunately has none to lend, to which she replies that she must go and find some money. Hutchinson watches as Mary continues and meets a second man on the street. The two speak briefly and then walk together across Commercial Street in the direction of Dorset Street and Mary's small apartment. Hutchinson creepily follows and watches the couple. They stop for a few minutes outside the entrance to Miller's Court, and Hutchinson claims to see that the man was carrying a small parcel under his arm. They exchange a few more words and continue into Miller's Court. Hutchinson remained outside watching in a stalkerish fashion until he hears the clock ringing at 3 a.m. The next morning, around 10.45, Mary Kelly's landlord stops by her room to collect on the overdue rent. After getting no response from knocking on the door, he pushes aside a curtain of one of the small windows and would be the first to witness a most gruesome and horrid scene, one that would go down in infamy for its heinous brutality. With Mary Kelly, Jack was provided the opportunity to explore his darkest side. He had the time and the privacy to do his worst, and he took full advantage Mary Kelly was slaughtered beyond all recognition and fared far worse than any of Jack's previous victims. She was found on the bed, lying on her back, her throat cut to the spine, and split open from groin to breastbone like the others. But he didn't stop there. Her uterus, kidneys, and one breast were laid out by her head. The other breast was at her feet, along with her liver. The intestines and spleen were on either side of the laid out abdominal cavity. The flesh of the thighs had been cut to the bone and removed, placed on the bedside table with flaps of the abdominal flesh. Her face was butchered, her cheeks, eyebrows, nose and ears had all been removed. She would only be able to be identified by her eyes and her hair. Mary Kelly would be the last of the canonical five tragic victims of Jack the Ripper. It is unclear why the murders suddenly stopped 
and many theories exist, saying the killer was either arrested and locked up on other charges or committed to an asylum, or possibly that he committed suicide after fulfilling his sickest fantasy. All of the murders occurred over a weekend, which seems to indicate the killer may have had a regular day job during the week. There were more than a few suspects identified by police at the time, as well as over the last century as others have continued to investigate and speculate on who could have possibly been capable of committing such horrific acts. But no one would ever be charged with the Whitechapel murders. And to this day, the identity of Jack the Ripper remains a mystery. I'm Autumn Rebus, and I thank you for joining me in a darkly lit place. I invite you to please take a moment to check out the website, adarklylitplace.com, for more information. And look through the photo gallery. You can also follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at a darkly lit place. And I look forward to meeting you back here in two weeks. Thank you for listening. <laughs>